episode 40 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we're talking about the new reality that we're living in right now. And I'm talking with a friend and fellow podcaster and former Navy SEAL. So I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, this is episode 40 of Tactical Breakdown. Welcome back. This is a really special episode. We've actually been at this for one year now. Um, I launched the first episode, I believe it was June 6th, 2019, and uh, man, have we come a long way since then. I've had the most amazing opportunity to interview and speak with some of the best instructors and trainers in the world, Um, and I'm truly humbled, humbled by the people that agree to come on the show and speak with me, uh, and humbled by you and just the support that I've been given from this community, Um, so thank you very much for that. Before we jump into the episode, one of the things that I want to touch on is just remind everyone listening to this that I try my best to personally respond to every person who messages me, doesn't matter if it's on social media, if it's on the podcast platforms, or by leaving reviews, um, sending emails, text messages, and um, one such person, Ian, left a review saying that the music was not equalized to the audio Um, And so thank you, Ian, for that. And I hope I get it right for you this time and and will be moving forward. So um, thank you for leaving that feedback for me. I'm always trying to make this podcast better. So if you're listening to this and you ever have any suggestions uh, or comments about the content or the ways that we could make this better, please reach out to me. Don't ever hesitate. Um, And I promise I will do my absolute best to get back to you as soon as I possibly can. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest today, Um, Mr. David Rutherford. For those of you who listen to podcasts, you will know that name. He's been around for many years. He is a former Navy SEAL. He is the founder of Frog Logic and uh, just one of the overall most upbeat, positive people that I have ever met. Um, I've listened to him for a very long time and uh, it was a complete honor for me to have him on the show. So we talk a lot today about stress, about living life in this new COVID-19 world that we're living in. I'm just really excited to have him on, so I hope you enjoy the episode. Here's to another 40 episodes and uh, many, many more years to come. So let's get into this episode. Here you go. All right. Today on the phone, I got Dave Rutherford. Um, Dave, man, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, I, this is a, a real pleasure, man. Uh, anytime, though, for me, having been, it's been quite a while since I actually carried a gun for a living. So I, I was got to admit, I was a little nervous coming on the tactical breakdown. Because uh, <laughs> my tactics right now and today with all that's going on is like a uh, 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 a jar of not a jar, but a sprayer of of bleach and some some gloves. That's that's my tactical breakdown. Now <laughs> yeah. it's not as cool as in the past, you know, but it, it it's definitely my life right now. So thanks, brother, for having me on. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we're fighting a we're fighting an invisible enemy, as uh, as President Trump would put it. Right. Well, so. what's crazy is that I, you know, you go through in in our training, you know, we go through all those biomed hazard classes, and you know, you talk about all these types of things and what happens, and 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 then all of a sudden you're living it in a different, and it it's it's a lot different than what you expect. And, and as I would imagine that it's tremendously different for all the first responders out there. I'm sure everybody has gone through their classes. Everybody has uh, done their research, but man, when you're in the midst of something like this, uh, understanding that uh, a breakdown is coming <laughs> and, and you better acknowledge that your tactics are squared away. I mean, that's, this is no more greater, uh, facing the the storm than than I think we've seen, and at least in in my lifetime so far, it's nuts. I mean, it's it's interesting too coming at it from from you know having a little bit of exposure to it previously. When I was when I was in with the forces, I got to take CBRN defense and and all those types of things. You for you as well. I mean, you were you were a combat medic, so mm-hmm. I mean, when it when it comes down to this type of stuff, I mean, there's a little bit more understanding of what it is as a whole. I mean, I'm sure you've spoken with experts. I've had a chance to speak with experts on it. And, um, you know, it's it, it's interesting to see what comes out in the media versus what people are saying that actually know what they're talking about. Oh, that's the crazy part right now. I just had a family member yesterday sent out, uh, you know, the, the typical, in quotes, my friend knows some people in the government and just sent me this. <laughs> And it's this long, you know, rambling accusation of of you know the end of the world on it on it on our doorsteps, and 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 it's funny, you know, just today when I wake up, as I go through about six different news sources in the morning, every morning, uh, you know, the, the, one of the top headlines is everybody be conscientious that misinformation is being flooded into our <laughs> our country right now in order to provoke a higher degree of panic. Uh, you know, and so after a, a 45 minute uh, crafted response, hopefully I I put everybody in a in a greater uh, place for context on 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 how to handle something like this. <laughs> so yeah, it's you know panic panic is what's going to get you. It's not it's not the flu. You know what I mean? Like it's it's it. You're not going to get if you're if you're a person that's generally healthy. I mean, you have no underlying medical conditions, and you're not a senior citizen. Really, you shouldn't have too much to worry about other than, you know, maybe if you are a carrier passing it off to somebody in one of those uh, demographics. But I mean, it's it's crazy. The, the, it this, is. This... And, and, and I, obviously, we all want to make ourselves feel better. Right. We all need to alter our perception uh, in order to kind of keep at bay. Uh, that those stress levels, right, keep at bay our limbic systems and our our that that core root of fear that's always just just beneath the surface of our perceptions in in life. And uh, you know, in this particular case, people might be a little bit overconfident. But the great challenge is is your ability to spread that to somebody that doesn't have that confidence in their health. And that's what's driving me nuts. And I, I live down in South Southeast Florida and we're in the middle of spring break. And, you know, the mayor of Miami who has tested positive for COVID-19 is out there screaming daily 
stay home, you idiots. But yet the beaches are full, the bars are full, and and it's just this giant petri dish of of of, of potential contamination. And and it's just it's depressing because you know. Uh, it, in the apartment or the condominium next door or wherever they are, are the largest uh, group of senior citizens, retirees in the country uh, who are at the greatest uh, risk. And, and so that is the frustrating part for me, really. Yeah, it's I mean, I just got off the call with a buddy yesterday who's out in California and parts of the the state have been kind of locked down where they've shut everything down and, and basically said, hey, stay, you know, stay in your homes. Don't go out unless it's something absolutely urgent or necessary and, you know, imposing curfews and stuff. And, and he's like, I, from a law enforcement perspective, he was like, I don't know who's going to enforce this. He's like, he's wow. like he's, what are we supposed to do? Like just stop people and be like, Hey, where are you going? The grocery store. Oh, okay. And then like, am I supposed to follow them to the grocery store and make sure that's like what they're doing? Like it's, I, I mean, this is the, the irony in this is pretty, pretty fantastic, right? This is a, like San Francisco, they've, they've put into place these, these criminal uh, restrictions, right? In terms of being able to uh, write people up or arrest people, you know, homeless people can walk into a, a, a retailer, steal $990, $999 worth of something, as long as it's under a thousand bucks and they're not going to be tried. But yet now they want that same uh, minimal police force to go out and enforce drunk people to go home. Oh, I know. <laughs> In masses. The irony is fantastic, it, but uh, it's unfortunate as well, too, because this is the reality of how thin the veil of security actually is for our societies. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of studies done um, from a sociological and anthropological standpoint when it, when this is all done and resolved, right? I hope so. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's like the last time this happened, I mean, a hundred years ago, right? Last major type of viral outbreak yep. pandemic. And I mean, well, I mean, there's, there's, you can argue that SARS and 03 was, was substantial. I mean, the death rate, the mortality rates were what over 10% or something crazy, but but certainly not on a global level like this. I mean, this is this is definitely we're in that spectrum of of 1918 for sure. This is really interesting conversation, and people are probably wondering what the hell are they going to talk about. Um, it- <laughs> <laughs> you never know with old David Rutherford. No, never know. Um, but it does. We and we had, we just touched on it, but we talk about stress, and you know when we talk Amen. about. Our our first responders, whether you're law enforcement, if you're, uh, you know, fire, paramedic, even correctional officers, security officers, anything like that, anybody who's out in the public right now, I mean, the jobs are stressful enough. And now you're adding on this overarching component where you're saying, hey, your job is to be in physical contact with people most of the time. And really, that's what's going to get you. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so... We're, we're sitting there and we're saying, okay, well, there's another added level of stress to what they're doing. And I know that right now, I mean, that's a big thing for you. And and coming from more of a, an operator side of things from the military, um, you do a lot of work with uh, mental health, stress injuries on operators. Um, but I think it's super applicable to, to our listeners. And that's why I'm super excited to have you on the show. So why don't you give us a little bit about, uh, you know, what Dave Weatherford's doing right now, what you're doing with Frog Logic and, and kind of how this all ties together. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, it, it, you know, it, it, 
it's 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 definitely you know nice to be able adam to to you know to be able to describe your passions in life right one frog logic is certainly from its uh, topical perspective uh, you know it's a motivational company i i do you know 40 to 50 motivational speaking events a year around north america mostly uh tons within the financial industries and um but i also have a, a performance coaching business and and work with professional uh, sports teams and uh just was recently last uh, the beginning of last week was working with the minnesota twins during spring training uh the beginning of the football season last year i worked with the green bay packers and penn state men's lacrosse team last last spring um so you know the performance coaching is really kind of uh, uh has evolved in terms of being able to extrapolate these four core concepts within frog logic and what i teach through these speeches um, to help in performance coaching. But the, the next big thing on the horizon for, for me, uh, as well as continuing my podcast, I've got a podcast called the Frog Logic Podcast. We reach about 100,000 to 150,000 people a month with that show um, and is, is to continue posting videos on YouTube. But also uh, we're in the process of developing online core curriculum uh, and training uh, to uh, really focus on these four main concepts, uh, what what comprise frog logic or kind of uh, thinking like a Navy SEAL, right? Without minus the guns, the bombs, the bullets, the death, and all the other horrific stuff that is involved with being an operator. So this is the stuff that's uh, applicable in all human beings' lives. Uh, and those four main things are I teach people to embrace fear, to forge self-confidence, to live a team life, and to live with purpose. And so that's a big, big thing uh, for what Frog Logic. And then from a philanthropic perspective, uh, I've been working uh, for the past two years with an organization called the Synchrony Program, which is run out of Methodist Hospital in Houston. Uh, and I work closely with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Chris Free. Uh, he and his associates uh, really are trying to focus on getting the right help for any uh, individual that has seen uh, combat in the special operations community or in the intelligence world. And uh, what they have really made some tremendous advancements uh, in their research and and understanding the totality of issues that operators are facing. Uh, It's not just solely post-traumatic stress or TBI it's a combination of about nine or 10 different things up to including endocrine dysfunction, uh, sleep apnea, um, digestive disruptions, uh, uh, emotional distress at all different types of levels. Right. Um, and, and what they've coined a phrase that really helps people understand the totality of this and they call it operator syndrome. Um, and that's uh, where a lot of my research and focus is being directed now uh, in, in trying to understand how the human condition, how the human mind, in particular human emotions, human body, uh, deal with long-term exaggerated effects of stress. And, and, and where we primarily like to focus is on a concept called uh, the allostatic load. And, and this term is defined as the cost of chronic exposure to elevated or fluctuating endocrine or neural responses 
resulting from chronic or repeated challenges that the individual experiences as stressful, which uh, obviously can apply to first responders. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it can. I think there's, I mean, there's so much, you know, people like to separate what happens in the military with what happens civilly with our police forces. But a lot of that stress load, like physiological and psychological stress load can be very similar, right? I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, you're not, you're not out on patrol, you know, looking out, watching out for like IEDs, VBIDs and stuff like that. But you're constantly at that heightened level of awareness where you, at any given time, something can pop off. Um, You could see something, you have to jump out of the car and go, or you get called to, you know, uh, you know, some type of emergency situation. Maybe it's um, an infant not breathing. Maybe it's uh, a a shots fired call. There's, there's so many different things. And let's just, Adam, Adam, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. Let's just put it in the context of what we're experiencing now. Right. All municipalities around the country, around the world, right, in particular in North America, are having briefs right now. And and what they're briefing their people is, all right, this is the plan when the healthcare system becomes overloaded and we're having to triage people in the parking lots of hospitals or clinics, right? How are we going to react to you telling somebody that they're they're infected? grandmother with uh, emphysema uh, cannot come into the hospital for treatment of COVID-19 because she doesn't fall within the realm of, of our triage criteria, right? Now, we want you, your third year on the job as an officer, we want you to go stand out there with your hand on your gun, uh, you know, and, and controlling the masses, the hordes of people, or or how about in these curfews when all the criminals know everybody's inside, you know, the witching hour is wide open and your local municipalities are taxed and don't have enough people to patrol the streets adequately. And, and they're not, that's not even, that's just in their briefings. What do you think is helping to them in terms of their uh, uh, mental health or their, their stress levels, their cortisol levels? I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. That's even not even doing the job. That's just priming the mind for what they're going to face. Do you think that there's a better way that as a, as a command team, is there a better way to deliver that information to officers or is it kind of just a, you know, it's just a (laughs) catch 22. Like it has to go out there and it's going to happen regardless. Or is there certain ways that we can phrase things or deliver information like this that doesn't involve an increased level of stress? Well, all the data right now is proving that uh, uh, pre-trauma, pre-trauma exposure or pre-trauma priming, I like to call it, right? Um, This is your pre-mission brief. This is your pre-mission orientation towards uh, the contingencies, if you will, or or the actual expectation of what you might face based on real-time intel that's coming in, right? And all this, the, the data is showing that just, uh, just being able to give people a greater expectation or time to process the potentiality of, of danger prior to being in the midst of it uh, gives them an exponentially greater ability to process chaos in the real-time chaos. And, and I've got a, a really brilliant uh, friend of mine. His name is Dan Luna. 
as a former SEAL. I mean, just an ungodly combat record and uh, just a brilliant guy who's in the process of going to get his doctorate so he can become one of the world's leading authorities on violence and, and how violence affects societies, how violence affects anything. And, and, you know, you combine that with, you know, with what he's discovering or has discovered and is now discovering with also Dave Grossman, who, you know, who wrote on killing and on combat and all the data with, you know, mixed with all the psychological case studies out there as well, too. And the testing show that if you simply spend uh, a portion of, of time being honest with your, your people as to what the expectations might look like, they're much better prepared and in dealing with it in real time and then how they deal with it afterwards. And then the, the other flip side of that is as soon as they finish these scenarios, when they're, when time and opportunity present to get them in for a post-op debrief, that includes mental health assessments, which are, 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 are substantial. I think, yeah, you're 100%. It's interesting when you said um, how, not trying not to drop a bomb or, or like a psychological bomb on the officers right before they go out on shift. So they're coming in they're off days off and you sit them down in your briefing prior to them rolling out. And you're like, Oh, by the way, boom, here's this big bomb on them. You're going to, you have to do this, 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 and this watch out for this, 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 and this. And there's, Oh, you've got five, you've got 500 people uh, See you later. <laughs> storming the local supermarket right now. You and your partner go keep them quiet. Good luck. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. So, uh, you know, and, and, and the other place where we're seeing just horrific challenges starting to arise, and particularly in Spain and Italy, are our healthcare workers, right? So, any anybody who's, you know, ever been, you know, placed under a, a large amount of stress over long periods of time understands intimately the devastating effects that it has on every aspect of your body. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, now when you ramp that up to a place where that there is a high probability that death, if you do make a mistake, death could, could be the end result. Um, that next jump in level in terms of that exhaustive state and where you are once sleep debt. Cause you know, once you go past that, you know, 40 or so hour mark of sleep deprivation, man, now you're running into places where, uh, you know, through cognitive disassociation, right. Where you are, you don't have the capacity or in simple terms, the willpower to defend against those emotional highs and lows. And so you start to see people, uh, not being able to work together well, not being able to communicate effectively, and and essentially at a certain point everybody breaks. Uh, and under these conditions and circumstances, what 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 you really have to be concerned about is what is the refractory period for the individual? Because Adam, your refractory period is going to be different than mine, right? Mine is going to be different from the nurse. The nurse is going to be different from the ER doc, and, and so. Imagine trying to manage uh, those recovery sessions all while you're being bombarded by real life threatening situations coming at you at, at paces you've never dreamed of. You're exactly right. I had an opportunity earlier in my career to, to work for a health region and, and, and train their security staff and be part of the security team. And, you know, working hand in hand with the, you know, the nurses, the doctors, 
you're a hundred percent right in that there is that that state where there's everyone's every in, every industry every group of people has those hard chargers the people that you look at you're like how are you still going like you know like <laughs> what the what what is this guy on right they're like like they're just going 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 like 12 hours 24 hours straight like it's like they haven't rested they haven't eaten they're just going but you start seeing massive breakdown in their abilities further down the road that if they're not if you're not eating correctly if you're not getting adequate rest or at least breaks both physically and mentally that there is that that cycle of breakdown does happen a lot sooner right and you get you like you had said earlier if you don't eat correctly there's a whole bunch of physiological problems that happen with your digestive system with your uh with everything that happens your endocrine system there's lots of things that then leads to in something especially like what we're in right now with the with COVID nineteen, you almost immunocompromise yourself because your body isn't able to keep up with the load that you're placing on it, and then you in, exactly. you introduce some type of virus, and your body doesn't have the means to fight it off. So in your in your thinking, like, hey, if I keep going like this, I can do all this other stuff. You're not looking long tail, and you're not seeing. Well, a week from now, you're going to be you're going to be racked up for for three weeks trying to fight this bug off because you didn't take care of yourself at the beginning. Exactly. And and that's why it really takes, uh, you know, in, in any organization that is, is tasked with uh, um, kind of uh, <laughs> the unfortunate realities to uh, 7.8 billion people on the planet, right? If, if you don't have uh, really great management in place to monitor those types of things, right? Much less just being proficient at the job itself, right? Understanding the importance of triage and how you triage crisis. I mean, that's an art form. And, and really, any person that is, is capable and, and, and highly functional in those situations is worth, you know, 100 men, 100 women. And, and, and but at the same time, you also have to have the objective manager who's sitting out and not managing the crisis, but managing the people managing the crisis, mm-hmm. right? Because, because the one beautiful aspect about the human condition is our willingness to dive into the deep end of crisis. That's the beauty of, of being of human beings, is that no matter what crisis we face throughout history, there's a willingness for brave, courageous individuals to dive head first, right? To really get immersed in, in the corrosive nature of, of all these evils, whether it's uh, actual evils of, of human action or it's the evils of, of, of human virus or bacteria or whatever you want to call it, right? That there are people who want to do it. However, man, there has to be somebody somewhere that is uh, that truly understands the long-term uh, aggravated effects of, of reaching your allostatic load and, and, you know, and just what happens to the individual. You want to talk about uh, post-traumatic stress, um, guess what? We're about ready to have a world uh, that is going to experience in some way, shape, or form uh, some exposure to post-traumatic stress, you know, and, and in particular those healthcare and law enforcement officials and, and first responders. 
Yeah, it's it, a lot of, and it's, I'm excited because, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I'm. No, it I'm, is cool. I'm excited too. I, I know where you're going, man. Keep going. Yeah, there's, say it. There's been a long time where we've only associated PTSD with combat, <laughs> right? So post-traumatic stress yep. has to do with combat. Did you get blown up? Did you get shot? Did your buddy get shot? Okay, that's that's fair. Oh, you you're a civilian, you're or you're a police officer, or you work in healthcare. This doesn't apply to you. The definition doesn't fit. It's not the same thing. What we're starting to realize is, you know what? We have to start pulling these labels off of off of these mental health concerns because it's not one size fits all. And like you had just said, there is going to be a full generation of people that are never going to forget this span of, of three, six, nine, 12 months, right? Every single person 70 years from now, sitting there talking to their grandkids is going to be sitting there saying, Oh, I remember back in 2020 when COVID hit, right? It's, it's, it's those types of generational stories. And you cannot tell me that that isn't due to those, the, the stress and how that it implants it into your brain. Like, you can't tell me that that's not why that we remember that stuff. Nobody that, that knows anything isn't going to tell you that. I mean, you, you always, the, the, the greatest fear is that you always have people out there that are like, hey, this is just life, suck it up. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, I, I don't think that works. I mean, it certainly worked uh, a lot better back post-depression, post-World War II, um, just because of the magnitude of 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 the trauma there i mean you know 75 million people dying around the world that was pretty traumatic um and and what it how they affected you know everyday life for not just six months but years on end i mean you look at look at people in europe and starting in 1937 they started to feel this pain and certainly felt it all the way post uh, 1948 into the 50s as they were trying to rebuild civilization over there, right? It just didn't happen overnight. And so the remnants of it, they linger for for not, you know, decades, but they linger for generations. And I think what we're seeing now is, you know, we've unfortunately become detached enough of those true monument, monumental shifts in consciousness, right? The, the, the being able to have that cognitive dissonance of, of that the pleasure of that and the fact that uh, we well we didn't we don't know what that's like that's those those times are over we're never going to face anything like that again and that's just it's a myth right and, and and to imagine that potentially this is our last virus we seek uh, i mean that's insane i mean just the 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 having 7.8 billion people it's an Im, every every <laughs> Uh, biologic, biological epidemiologists have said, oh, this is just the beginning. These are going to start coming in waves of, 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 of challenges. So my hope is, as you hope, that we can really take off the restrictive nature of, of servicing people in their mental health challenges, but also in a way where it says it, it doesn't invoke the victimization necessarily, but instead it, it instills a higher degree of, of perseverance and grit and ability to, to recover from these points because we're all smarter in how we approach these sins going into them. Do you think we're going to get to that point where people are just like, it's, it becomes 
just like everything else. And everyone's just like, yep, I understand. Um, we're going to make sure that you get all the treatment you need. I mean, it goes down to, you know, I have a, I have a buddy um, up here in Canada. His name's Terrence Cossaker, and he's he's going around and he's flipping this giant freaking tractor tire up the sides of mountains and glaciers to, to raise awareness for PTSD. <laughs> the guy's a savage. That is savage. That is savagery right and, there. You know, you know, he, when he, I had him on the show, we talked about the, that at the time, right as, as we were kind of doing the podcast, the, our, um, workers compensation board here wasn't recognizing, uh, PTSD as um, a workplace injury for first responders. Um, and that was something that's now being changed. There's some laws that have been changed since then, um, but it was an uphill battle. And I mean, that's up here in Canada and I can't speak to what's happening in the U S cause I don't know it well enough, but I mean, are- Oh, we're facing the same challenges. I mean, I've got tons of friends that are firefighters and police officers and paramedics and, and and everybody's facing the same challenge, and and the reality is is the, the insurance companies which control uh, how those dollars are are dished out uh, still have a, a massive control on on um, legislation because it, because you know trauma unfortunately is an incredibly subjective thing until we can uh, figure out a a uh, correlated pain uh, assessment of pain uh, of physical, mental, spiritual, emotional that that kind of puts everybody on, on a similar baseline, so we can more effectively judge. And now you're talking neuro implants, uh, neuro assessments for a year or more, whatever, whatever the craziness you want to, uh, in terms of people who are, are suggesting these that this is coming. Uh, you know, it is subjective. And, and unfortunately we do live in societies now where people like to cheat the system. And unfortunately, you know, one person's trauma, uh, might be not as substantial as another person's and, and that causes this dysfunction. So, uh, you know, I, it, we're, we're in this horrific catch 22 and, and hopefully, uh, an experience like what we're going through with COVID-19 is going to break some of those barriers down. So legislators, the insurance companies, municipalities are, are going to be more aware and uh, available to the profound impact of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I was like, do you think that, you know, there's always going to be those people that, that do cheat the system, but yep. if, if we know that that's the case, you know, is it, is it almost acceptable to say, listen, we know that X amount of people are going to are going to try to defraud this system or, or play the game and maybe they don't need the help that they're asking for. But we're going to allow it because the standard now is set so that anybody who does need it is able to get the help, because right now the, the standard is so high that, you know, even the people that do need the help aren't able to get it. So by dropping the standard, we're accepting more of the the people that are coming in gaming the system. But at the same time, we're opening up help to to more people. So, well, I th- I think it's really about being financially creative, right? Uh, so if 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 you have people coming in, generally what we see, and we see this, you know, it, it plagues the VA system. I mean, it really is just uh, you know people always have these uh, tyrannical statements about the VA as do I in many cases. I mean, I'll tell you what, my 
the local VA clinic in, in Boca Raton, Florida, the doctor there is atrocious. And, and it's almost as if she's, she's forgotten her, her uh, Hippocratic oath and how to treat people for some reason. I don't know. It's a horrible experience. However, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think that uh, what we have is people are constantly searching for that financial relief in some capacity, whether it's through, uh, you know, taking, you know, uh, any type of drugs that helps with sleep or pain or whatever, you know, people want that financial relief. So I think if you can have some type of reasonable screening process where free mental health assessments are are available to all that might need over a particular course of time, Right. Because the where we see it are people willing to make the repeated investments in time to really dig into the evaluation process with people that are capable of of doing that. Because on the same side, you have lots of these mental health care providers that are just getting a, a free dime from the government. And so, I mean, I've gone through several screenings for traumatic brain injury with with uh, you know. Uh, healthcare providers that aren't within the VA system in order to clarify it or get a second opinion for the VA to make my assessments, who who had no idea uh, uh, what, um, um, you know, blast wave injuries look like uh, in a self-contained space of doing kill house work for 30 days in a row. You know, you look at them, they, they look at you like you got a third eye coming out of your head. And, and so I, I think, what we need to do is is find a greater indoctrination process to gaining people access. Just think about it. Every every organization that deals with high levels of stress, there's a training regiment, right? You had to go through training to go in infantry. I had to go through training to to get in the SEAL teams. Hell, I didn't even do my job in, until five and a half years of training into it. So, you know, think about it that way. Let's give these people access to go through this this very well thought out curriculum of evaluation um, and, and with one healthcare provider that they can develop rapport with to where they get to a point that the right assessment can be made instead of an assessment like, hey, well, you know, perhaps you don't need all that. We, you know, you, you know, and be able to siphon out. Uh, I, I know this probably doesn't sound good, but to siphon out people that are trying to game the system, so to speak. Yeah, I think there's people understand that when you go to a personal trainer, that it's not a one and done, right? If I want to go to a personal <laughs> trainer, I can't go there for 40 minutes and they look me over, see me do some exercise, and they're like, okay, here's your here's your exercises that you need to do. See you later. It's a it's an ongoing process. And that same approach has to be taken now and, and transposed onto the mental health and, and to the medical side of things or the mental side of things when we're talking about these types of incidents, right? Like, and, and diagnostic procedures, because I mean, there's no personal trainer in the world that's going to be able to spend 40 minutes with you and give you a complete layout of, hey, this is exactly what is going on with you. And this is what you need to do to get better or to get, you know, recovered or, you know, whether it's an injury or you want to gain muscle or do whatever it is. But we don't it's not, for some reason, we don't see that same thing when we talk about mental health. It's, it's just strange to me. Well, remember, there are all these massive uh, individual emotional hurdles people have to. Uh, achieve just for them to be able to access a, a state, a really genuine state of vulnerability. So, 
there's a willingness to try and, and process uh, what the core root of the trauma is and, and what the individual uh, work that's going to be needed to be done for that particular person. That's the problem. All of this stuff is insanely individualized. And, and so, you know, yes, there are a lot of uh, collective uh, opportunities for people to to do things that improve mental health. And we, you know, I mean, that's why the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry every year. But there's also a, a component of a lot of it that's just horseshit. And, and so, you know, I, I think it, it's, it, it, it's definitely beneficial for a society if the powers that be recognize that the, those individuals who are willing to uh, uh, jump into the fire, so to speak, um, they, they deserve and should have the appropriate uh, opportunities available to them to be able to maintain uh, a, a healthy state of mind, a healthy existence uh, as they every day wake up and the potential for really substantial stuff happens to them. I'll never forget my first big call uh, when I was going through my my uh, uh, C, my 18 Delta training in New York. We spent a month in, in New York on the hospitals and the ERs. My first big call was Halloween, 1998, and uh, went in and had a guy that was uh, uh, apost- um, what do you call flatline that had gone asystole, and there was a big firefighter doing chest compressions. I switched off and worked this guy a whole code for uh, VTAC until uh, uh, you know the the doctor on the phone called it, and and I remember you know after I was done, the guys that I was with who one had been on 22 years, the other done 18 years. They're essentially like, Hey Rook, pick up your stuff. Let's go get something to eat. I'm like, well, whose problem is this now? Don't we, shouldn't we stay? And they're like, that ain't our problem. It's the cops. Meanwhile, the dude's family's just sitting right above us in this one room, one bedroom apartment in the Bronx. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is a really intense situation. Mm-hmm. Something that I've never experienced. And the way we discussed it is we went and got, uh, a cup of coffee and, and and something to eat at the local deli around the corner. And that was it. And there was never questioned. It was never talked about. It was never discussed. It was never nothing. And that's when I really came to realize, wow, um, this, this line of work uh, could, could sting a bit if I, if I don't get my head around it. You know, this brings us into a, a completely, kind of, it's not a different topic, but I mean, when we talk about combat and we talk about, you know, after a firefight, we have self checks and we have buddy checks. Same idea for, for law enforcement and first responders, right? When we go to a call there, after the call is completed, there should be some type of buddy check. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for physical injuries. I think there'd be a way to, to work in a component of uh, like a, a mental health check essentially with your partner. Do you think, what, what do you, what do you think that would look like? Oh, that's a great question, Adam. I mean, that that is a fantastic uh, place to start, right? What does the buddy check look like immediately after? You know, our our whole thing in 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 the teams was, you know, no no high fives until you know you're back at base, your kit's down, you've debriefed, and 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 everybody's safe and happy, right? And that's when you you know you crack your beer and you 
you, you do just that, right? You, you emotionally, um, evaluate, whoa, that was hairy. You tell some funny stories or you're like, Hey man, good job. You give props where props are due that. And then everybody kind of goes to their room and is like, Holy shit, what just happened? Uh, you know, and then they're, they kind of have to compartmentalize it, which is appropriate. Don't get me wrong. If you're, if, if you got to go to that next call and to go to that next call and go to that next call, it, you, there, there is a requirement of compartmentalization, but I think you're right. I think if it's, if it's, you know, it could be as simple as a, a 10 question back and forth between your buddy. Hey, are, are, how you feeling? Hey, is there anything in that one thing that really stood out? Yeah. That dead dude's eyes were really, you know, that really got to me. And then, you know, a couple of days later, you check back in. How you doing? Oh, man, I every night I'm sleeping. I'm seeing this. You check in, you know, seven days later, and now it's pronounced. Man, I, I'm seeing it all night long. I'm seeing three. Okay, let's and halt and let's get back in. So as simple as, as a, you know, five or ten question, a 20-minute a just chat with your buddy or your, your partner or whomever, you know, that's, that's a a good, a good place to start right there. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you talk about like responsibilities and and obviously every single person that, that swears an oath, puts on a uniform, goes to work. Your, your responsibility, you know, first and foremost is so to yourself to make sure you get home to your partners, right. To your community, your country. But where does that responsibility fall? Should it fall on you to make sure that your mental health is in check? Should it fall on your partner? Should it fall on your your sergeant or your lieutenant or your platoon commander, or your your CO? Like where where do you think the buck stops? Or is it is it a is it a cumulative effort where everybody kind of has to play their play their role and and make sure that these checks are being done right from the ground up? It's everybody's job. And the fact that that organizations don't look at it that way is 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 treasonous. It's it's insane to me. Everybody plays a role in each other's mental health in 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 organizations where high stress is part of the job, and there should be checks and balances on on every level. Um, you know, we we. The great challenge is to recognize that as as we develop technologically, as we develop socially, as we develop uh, uh, intellectually, right, and the recognition that that we're, we're making insane advancements in every aspect of of human existence. Uh, the other part of that is, uh, you know, all this other stuff is not going to stop. And, and and anybody who's worked in in any one of these fields for any significant period of time uh, develops that consciousness, right? Uh, this is a part of life. We have people that kill each other. We have people that steal each other. We have people that infect each other. We have people that cheat each other, that beat each other. I mean, we have diseases. We have economic collapses. We have uh, dictatorial regimes that are brutal in, in nature. That's a part of how we operate. Uh, and, and just because of, uh, the age of enlightenment or, you know, podcasts doesn't mean that all of a sudden, uh, uh, utopia is, is, is brewing and on, you know, life as we know it is going to rapidly evolve away from that reality. And the fact of the matter is there's a large portion of the population that's just 
utterly dysfunctional uh, and for whatever reason, whether it's environmental or genetic, who knows? Um, so uh, we have to uh, recognize that that's the state. So it falls on everybody's shoulders and, and especially in, 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 in professions where the stigmatism of, of seeking help uh, in, in reality detracts from the collective assessment of a person's ability to do the job. I'm in the teams. Can you imagine if I go on an op and I come back and the first thing I do is go see, uh, my boss and say, boss, I'm really rattled. Uh, you know, this one little section has really got me. Uh, I, I want to talk to somebody, you know, they're going to be like, all right, sit down, you're done. Go back to, you know, go back to, uh, where, you know, wherever the main base is or back to the other country. And we're going to put you on administrative, you're done. And you can't, you can't do go do your job that you've invested X month number of years to really become proficient. Now all of a sudden you're, you, there's this fear that that's going to be stripped from you instantaneously. Mm-hmm. That that's, that's debilitating. That causes, that primes you for uh, an exempt, an exponentially greater uh, response to that trauma because you're now you have the fear of needing help, not being able to ask for help, all this other crazy swirl of, of emotions that's happening. So, you know, imagine, you know, you do go in and now I, listen, I've, I've had friends of mine that operate at the highest level. One told me about deployment where he's on, they did, I think 93 ops in 90 days midway through, they had had a very successful deployment going on. They had gotten rid of a lot of bad guys and, you know, the powers that be forced the psychological uh, test on them. And as, as he got halfway through this test, he read this question that was like, uh, have you experienced or felt as if anybody uh, you've confronted in the last 24 hours wanted to kill you? <laughs> Meanwhile, no, think about how silly that is, right? And think about how silly that is. And, and he had, you know, just the op that night, they'd taken a bunch of gunfire at them as they were assaulting through this target. And now all of a sudden he has to, in real time, he has to stop himself from this, you know, this allostatic load, this emotional high, this uber focused place of, of, of controlled violence that's, that's nece- needed to do his job. And now all of a sudden, you know, uh, some shrink is forcing him to answer a great question, but that's been written in the wrong capacity for the particular end user because somebody somewhere is too fucking lazy to write the right questions for these guys in this situation. And that's my point, right? We all bear the responsibility to assist one another, but we need to roger up and we need to use the right questions at the right time for the right audience. And that's where we're falling immensely short. Yeah. I mean, you see it a lot where, you know, it's that everyone's afraid that that show of weakness, that, that crack or chink in the armor, um, if you expose that to, to your command team, that you're going to get pulled, right? That, yep. that's, that's it. Um, and it's, it's, it's like you said, it can be debilitating, but it's, it's so, it's crazy to me that that's where we're at and we're still there. Right. I mean, I, and you would know so much better than I would, but I mean, I'm sure if you talk to the guys that are operating at the highest level, whether on the teams or Delta or whatever, those guys are, they're in that, they're still in that same fight every day where they get out of a, off of an op or off of a deployment and they come back and they may be hurting, um, whether it be psychologically 
or physically, and they're not going to mention it to anybody. They're not going to say dick because, like you said, there is that chance that if they show that chink in the armor, that they're going to get pulled out of the job that they love doing. So, I mean. And we found, we found, Adam, we found that that if guys wait beyond a 12 to 18 month period to access that type of, of health care, and, and, and listen, you, it can be health care for your 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 orthopedic injuries, your sleep dysfunction, your digestive issues. We have tons of guys that have digestive problems, much less your post, actual post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury. You can go get the help for that and then also weave in these other assessments. And, and, and it's, it's perfectly acceptable, right? But it has to be acceptable for, you know, that's been, that acceptance is, is woven in from the first moment you walk into training, from the day that first guy walks into uh, uh, Buds uh, and he's in first phase and they're doing a brief on, uh, guess what? Welcome to the, the greatest era of operating in human, that, that in, at least in, in American history, uh, 20 straight years of combat. Uh, what, but guess what? We, we also have really, you know, we have some guys that are really broken as a result of that. And we're going to change the way we do things now, right? To have them be able to to uh, um, adjust fire, if you will, as the approach in training, where you, you don't, it's not that you're making somebody less able to invoke violence uh, in those predicaments, because that's essentially what, what, what it's all about, right? In, in our world is to take a, a young, willing individual that has, almost little to none, no exposure to violence. And over a relatively short amount of time with a a very intense immersion training to uh, reprogram them to where a violent life is, is perfectly acceptable. And they're happy to achieve that every day that they can to make them better. Right. Well, over long periods of time, you have to recognize that is going to have irreversible effects. Now, what, why is it so hard to drop in, uh, at a staggered way, uh, ways to, you know, uh, give them to start thinking about, Hey, your mental, if you're not going to come in and get mental health within, you know, the, the, the confines of your unit organizations, don't be afraid to step outside the box and go seek them either online. Here's some great resources here. Here's some great books to deal about it. Uh, we're actually going to have, uh, uh, platoon meetings where all we're going to sit down is we're going to talk about everybody's mental health. Hey, you good? I'm good. Yeah, you're good. Hey man. Because what we're finding is that even a small amount of discussion, uh, actually enhances the unit's, uh, operational capability tenfold by just doing small amounts of assessments, uh, as, as they develop into, uh, you know, whatever, uh, specialities that they, they, they go, they, they, they become. Yeah, I think that plays a lot into teamwork and, you know, the when when you get really close with a team and this doesn't have to be and we don't have to be talking about, uh, you know, like a squad or a military team. You could be a, you could be part of a basketball team or a football team. When you get close, when you get close with your team, you know, people get more comfortable calling out their buddy for for stupid shit. Right. It's hey, how are you? I'm good. Bullshit. Jonesy told me that you were <laughs> fucking you know, you had said some stuff to him. Now I'm concerned. So I'm calling you out on it. And I think there has to be more of that where we're looking out for each other at a team level, like you'd said, but 
Well, I mean, as a person, listen, I, I deal with teams all the time and I deal with teams at the highest level. I deal with professional athletes, right? And, and these, these, the, the challenges is when, when finances or, or the fear of reprisal in some capacity uh, plays a role, it, it shuts that, that desire uh, down pretty substantially. And, and, and so what, when I come in and I start working with teams on how to develop or forge deeper, uh, more concrete culture, um, one of the big things that we, that I talk a lot about and it's stuff that I had learned, you know, when I worked for the agency was, Hey man, there's the, the lesson of, 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 um, rapport and the development of trust is the fundamental difference between, uh, uh, rapid success or, or prolonged delayed success, right? Because if you trust that everybody around you is in a similar predicament as you, uh, and, and that opens up that space for that genuine emotional connectivity. And it's within that space that I don't care. You, and you, you know, all I, I challenge anybody listening Go come up with the greatest team in your mind, the greatest team in history, whatever that looks like, whether it's the 1980 Olympic hockey team or it's the Spartan 300 or anything in between, right? Go do some research on them and listen to the firsthand accounts of how people felt about each other. And that is what you're seeking. And that is what you need to assess, especially when you're dealing with Life and death stressors, man. You have to be able to get people to understand the 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 depth and the challenges that you're facing every day. That could ultimately, if left without without some type of assessment or resolution, compound themselves into where you're going to get yourself injured, or worse, you're going to get somebody on your team injured. One other thing that I did want to touch on, because I mean, I've, I've been listening to you for a long time and I know that you're a very, very passionate instructor. You love teaching. Um, you love sharing your knowledge, but you also work with building new instructors. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, you said from the training level and building people from the ground up, what can we do as instructor? So everybody who's listening to this, if you're listening to this and you're an instructor, what would you tell that person? Like, Hey, listen, if you have, if you have these new recruit officers, if you have this, if this new batch of soldiers in your training, where can we, how can we implement this? And, and what do you think their responsibility is from an instructor level? That, that's a fantastic question. And I wish, I wish this was a question that anybody within the training world would 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 ask themselves this and 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 the number one thing that i i try and and teach any instructor in any level in anything is is you know do you really know who you're teaching right do you really understand and the problem is is that most instruction is has this very substantial time requirement involved and most instruction is a derivative of getting the, the, the masses through the curriculum in order to, to reach certification. Um, and as an, an instructor being uh, pressured by whatever organization that you're a part of, uh, it, it, it puts on stress. 
And what it does is that you, you start teaching to the lowest common denominator usually, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're only as fast as your slowest person. And so what happens is uh, teachers become complacent uh, and they say, all right, I've got a, I start at, you know, I've got a seven hour teaching day or six hour teaching day with breaks in there. This is the structure and how we do it. But they don't do the initial work to really come to understand what the motivational triggers are first and foremost. Why is the individual there? What is the reason they're willing to alter their lives by this particular training? And what is their main driver? Is it money? Is it excitement? Is it the desire to become more educated or more knowledgeable? What, what are the drivers? And then also, how does that individual learn? Right? And it doesn't take a lot to do a simple assessment of, of really trying to figure out how people learn. Right? Where do they come from? What is their cultural background? Most especially, what is their organizational cultural background? What organizations have they been a part of in the past that have either horrible training programs attributable to it or, or really sophisticated high-end training? And, and, and then once you have those assessments, man, now you can really begin to hone in on, on making sure the individual not only uh, uh, you know, gets into that, that person and their ability to replicate or, or react to the information and then be able to produce a, a, an effective response with it and their own abilities, uh, but also uh, to be able to elicit a deeper emotional connectivity to what you're learning, right? When I put into context, one of the big things that I would do uh, based on um, uh, my one of my greatest mentors in my life, a guy named Bruce Cunningham, who is just a curriculum master, a teaching, I mean, in my mind, a teaching God, this guy really understood it. What he would allow me to do with a lot of the junior officers going through our program was to really put to the question, great, I'm you know, gl- glad you went to the Naval Academy, to the Air Force Academy, wherever, but who are you and what kind of leader do you actually want to become? You, know, you can regurgitate all the Winston Churchill quotes or General Ma- Ma- you know, MacArthur or whomever, anything you want to do. But man, who are you going to become once you allow this training to enter into your being? And how are you going to shape the, the, the instruction to where it fits you and your great strengths, right? And that's where you begin to having to challenge people and, and, and challenge people, not just in being able to regurgitate information, but really testing them and, and, and why and what they want to become with this training that for me that's the biggest advice I can give anybody out there who is an instructor in any capacity to really gain greater understanding of the motivational triggers within your student, as well as, as the emotional drivers too. I love that. I, I mean, I've had a lot of really, I mean, I've had the opportunity to, to sit across from and talk with some of the top instructors in the world. And I mean, it's, it seems to be just a consistent thing where, you know, the points that you had just brought up that we really need to start hammering this home with anybody who wants to become an instructor or a trainer, or, you know, even like an FTO or something where you have some type of training responsibility. It's not something that should be taken lightly. And 
there is work. If you think that being an instructor is taking a certification course, getting your name on a piece of paper, and then going to work and teaching the same, just regurgitating the same crap that you just took, man, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be there. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, I do know it. Like I live this. I, I was in my second platoon uh, pre nine 11 was in my second platoon. I was, you know, I was the lead, uh, medical guy. I was going to be the Intel, all this stuff. I was excited. I had great bosses, the best bosses I could have ever dreamed for. And then needs of the Navy called and we're like, Hey, rut, we're, you got pulled buddy. They're sending you over to be an SQT instructor. And, and I, I remember that was debilitating. All I wanted to do was do platoon after platoon, after platoon, after platoon. And, and now all of a sudden uh, as a one platoon wonder, I'm being sent over to instruct the next batch of, of young men uh, that ultimately, because 9-11 happened really quickly after that, went, you know, the next large group of guys that were joining all these platoons and going to war. And and I had a massive chip on my shoulder. And it, and it really took that gentleman, Bruce Cunningham, as well as these other beautiful human beings that really played a massive role in teaching me how to become a great instructor uh, to get to light a fire in my ass to say, hey, who cares about, uh, you know, your little worries and the fact that you don't think this is fair? Is, is it fair if you act like a horrible instructor and don't care about these kids when they're about ready to go into combat? Is that fair? Are you doing your job? Are you embodying what it actually means to be a Navy SEAL if you're going to bitch and moan uh, and not do your job the best of your ability because something wasn't fair to you? And that was a big wake up call for me. And most of that came from the fact that I was afraid that I wasn't going to be a good instructor, that I didn't have the skill sets, that I wasn't prepared, that I didn't know how to reach people. And thank God that I was surrounded by just the the most incredible pipe hitters you could ever imagine within our organization who I I was able to, you know, swallow my pride and, and reach out and say, gents. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Please help me be better. And they did. And that's luckily what sparked, you know, now going on, holy cow, going on 20 years of being an instructor to the point where I made this my profession because I love teaching so much. Yeah. You know, there's so much to, to unpack with that, um, that I think I'll kind of want to, I want to leave that there. Is there anything else that, I mean, with everything we've talked about today, are there any kind of last bits and pieces that are still bouncing around in your head that you, you feel like you want to share in regards to either the, the PTSD or the training or the team aspect? Yeah. I, one of the great things that I think um, teams that are uh, actively engaged in, in a higher level of stress, right? Not your just your average everyday work, although don't get me wrong, you know, work certainly as stressful people as, as, you know, in any capacity, but I'm talking about where life and death is on the line regularly. Um, what, what I would absolutely recommend is a, is a, a more comprehensive approach, um, in training that, that isn't being forced upon you, right? Whatever organization, they have certain blocks. You got check marks. You got to do quarterly, monthly, whatever training. And, and more training, the better. I'm a big, put in more training. and It'll pay dividends in crisis for sure. I'm that guy. But I'm also saying just take a, a, a simple thing I do right to start off as I ask, you know, 
Do you have a pre-week brief, right? Do you come in Monday morning, get your team together and just say, hey, how's everybody doing? How's everybody doing great? You doing mentally good? You good? You have a good weekend? All right, let's really work together this week. And then at the end of the week, bring everybody back in for 10, 20 minutes and say, hey, uh, I noticed you know these deficiencies that I'm not right quite seeing. Let's please that up. But I'm also seeing this great stuff. Does anybody have any questions, comments, concerns, or gripes? about how we feel we're doing as a team. And those open, honest sessions will literally give you exactly what is missing in your team. And and, and it's not going to happen in your first one or two because you have to establish that rapport and trust. But don't be afraid to have those sit-downs. And if you've got to do it on an individual level, man, it's worth the additional five to 10 minutes you spend as a collective or on the individual level, because I'm telling you, the stress is coming, it's perpetual, and then the great crisis is just looming around the corner. And if you haven't done the work prior to that crisis, uh, the the after effects and the long-term challenges of bringing that person back to a a mental health baseline where they can manage the daily rigors of, of a stressful job are going to be uh, much less than if you if you do it, you know, weekly. Dave, brother, I love it. And I can't tell you how honored I am, man, to have been able to have you on the show. I mean, I've been listening to you for a, a very long time. Um, so this was really exciting for me. Um, but before we get you off here, if if someone's listening to this and they want to get a hold of you, uh, they want to bring you in to, to speak with their organization, or they just want to listen to more about what Dave Rutherford's got going on with Fraud Logic, where can they find you? Uh, thank you so much, Adam. I, I just uh, can't appreciate, um, can't ex- express my appreciation enough. You know, I, I've I've been in the podcast game a, a long time since 2013. I have some, I think I'm 400 and something. I don't even know what I'm at. Somewhere around there, episodes and interviews with all kinds of amazing people, and I, I just it makes me so happy that. Uh, people like you are are out there bringing quality content to people in order to better their lives. Uh, that really is the the beautiful aspect of the human condition. And 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 I just can't thank you enough. You're really good at what you do. Uh, you're thorough in how you you ask, and you're respectful for your guests. And man, uh, uh, this was a, 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 an incredibly pleasurable experience. So one, I just want to thank you. Um, if your listeners want to find me. Uh, you can go to my website, which is teamfroglogic.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media, uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, at Team Frog Logic. And I try and put out, a, a, a try and get as, as close as possible, but a daily dose of motivation uh, where I try and gain some perf- perspective on, on, on mental health issues, physical issues, uh, spiritual issues. Uh, the issues of the day uh, and try and bring some light to people's lives. Uh, And then the Frog Logic podcast is my podcast. uh, And you can find that on all podcast platforms out there. All right. That's a wrap on my conversation here with Dave. If you want more information about what he's got going on about Frog Logic, you can check out the show notes or you can go to the breakdown.ca forward slash podcast and check out episode 40. It'll all be there for you. If you haven't already checked it out, go to iletsummit.com. That's the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. It's being run July 27th through 31st, completely online and completely free. 
for all officers and agencies around the world. Over 40 of the top instructors, over 75 hours of video content. If you don't already know about it, you got to go check it out. And um, we're going to be coming at you fast and furious with more episodes here on Tactical Breakdown. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast. All right, till next time, stay safe.